You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Tracy Diamond, Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, um, and thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Poetry and Conversation. Um, tonight, we are thrilled to have three talented local poets reading their work. Uh, each will read, we'll have a joint Q&A, and then they'll close with a final poem. So I'm going to introduce the first two readers. Um, after each one will read, then I'll introduce the other. Um, Paulette Beattie's poems, short stories, and personal essays have appeared in Crab Orchard Review, Always Crashing, and Beltway Poetry Quarterly, among other journals. Her chapbooks include Blues for a Pretty Girl and Voice Lessons. Her work also appears in the anthologies Full Moon on K Street, Poems About Washington, D.C., and Saints of Hysteria, a half-century of collaborative American poetry with Dana Efland. Her work has also been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net. I was so struck by her work when I first heard her read at the Little Patuxent Review summer launch in 2018. As she writes, this poem is still sitting in the daughter's mouth. This poem, this poem. So I'm excited to hear her work tonight. Please welcome Paulette Beattie. Hi everyone, thanks for coming out tonight. I think I've been writing most of my life, but I've also been, I used to be a singer, and that's probably how more people knew me than as a writer. Um, So I thought I would mostly revisit some of my music poems uh, tonight. Lady in Satin, 1958. What falls out could break your heart, will break your heart. The fix of lips, the way the teeth almost clash on the back end of baby. Syllables glitter like sleet, transformed to a cabinet of curiosities. The bruised tongue limps along. Breathe the note up from the pubic bone, from the fleshy place it rumbles between your legs. Sing from all fours. Sing curled up in the room's bare corner. Sing flat on your ass. Sing even with the wind knocked out, arms flailing, head hinged back. Sing till the spell is forfeit. The rewind button breaks. The end is the end. Then... Take your bow. You've earned it. I swear, you're ransomed. Back when I was a baby poet in my 20s, before I knew any better, I lived in Chicago, and I would go to the Green Mill, and there's like a little stage, and I would seriously stand right in front of the stage with my notebook, scribbling poems while Jump Blues was blasting into my ears and then having the time of my life. This is one of these poems. Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? A slow burn of tone, no shoulder wailing or head jerks. The fight's tight between fingers and keys, which isn't to say he and the Hammond are merely slow dancing. 
Sometimes he likes to lay into a particular note, moan it under the guitar and drums, so his mouth spills music and he seems a little drunk. Over his stretched notes, the drummers urging the skins toward truth, his mouth hangs open, fingers flash, slide, and glide, building desire into something that's enough. Pushing satisfaction through elbows, through forearms, through sticks, till rhythm halos the stage like neon. The guitar man's deep in prayer, brailing questions to his frets. The wide-hipped guitar's seductive. Touch me, play me, pull me. He wants to take us with him, but she's impatient, jealous. Break me down like this. Touch me here. Use all of your fingers. You should know that despite writing poems like that, I did an interview once, and the interviewer asked me why I wrote about sex all the time, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, what do you mean, sir? One of the reasons I liked uh, listening to the blues is because I'm a classic introvert, and I just have that monologue in my head the entire time, and finally... Here was this place I could go and this, this thing I could engage in that somehow cut through all that chatter and got right here. But it took me a really long time to figure that out. And when I did, I wrote this poem. It's for Ross Bond, who's the lead singer of the Mighty Blue Kings, which was my favorite band at the time. The first time I hear you sing, you are sweat-soaked, large hands quarreling the air, fingers hollering music. I am small, moaning, hips shaken loose, didn't know notes could tunnel through me like this. Harp mouth, fire maker, you are a room shaker, giant hands sounding the tambourine like gunfire. Your wide mouth, a greedy lover, biting up and down the harmonica, praise up that ragdoll feeling, that giving over feeling. Like when the minister slapped his oiled hand on my forehead, feel the power of Jesus, except I never felt it, never fell back into the arms of an usher writhing with Jesus, hungry for Jesus. But here you are, the Holy Ghost coming, not as a dove, not as a beam, but as breath, sweet and sweaty, my body stuttering, pushed past feeling, praying in tongues. Now for something completely different. Um, last summer I finished the manuscript I had been working on, which was a book about my relationship with my father, who died of cancer four years ago. And I wouldn't say we were estranged, but we had a difficult relationship. And in order to get myself to a place where I could help to care for him, I kind of wrote my way into that, and that turned into a collection. And one of the interesting things I found as I was writing the collection, that not only was I writing about our relationship, but I also found myself interrogating language, interrogating what poetry could do and why I even thought that poems could somehow help, that they could make words hold the weight of what I needed them to hold. So I'm going to read two poems from that collection, which is called Falling Still. The Father's Lonely Mouth. 
First, I wrote a poem. I thought a poem could unbruise me. I thought a poem would make me unlove my father. I wrote a poem larger than all the grief that had made me small. I wrote a poem to find a home after grief had unhoused me. What I mean is, what is it that a poem can do? What I mean is, how much grief can a handful of words hold? I don't understand why I'm writing a letter to my father, poem after poem. I don't understand why I'm writing poem after poem as if the dead still read. I don't understand what I think this poem can do. Still, I write grief after grief after grief like an incantation. I'm no good at naming things. To name this thing I am writing a poem fixes nothing. What is father but a word? What is daughter but a word? And the poem that contains a father and daughter who have no words between them? I don't understand the words that poured out of my father to make me. How could my father have made me when he didn't know a single word useful for writing a poem or a daughter? Why did my father leave me without a true enough word to mean grief? Why did my father leave without my name in his mouth? Um, the next poem has an epigraph by the uh, poet Alesh Mushtar. Today I found out that art is heavy. The poet writes a poem or a suicide note. The lies that I tell when I write for my art weigh six or seven pounds each. I have tried writing only what is true, but the lifting becomes even harder. I can hardly lift my elbows or my forearms. I can hardly get these fingers to unsausage themselves to scrawl the truth. Perhaps if I counted the truth using the metric system or some other language foreign to this American tongue. Oh yes, the American tongue. Did I mention it already starts me off at a deficit? Perhaps if I had a wife to send to the post office to mail off these lies one by one, to pretty them with stamps, to hurl them to other lands where art doesn't weigh as much, or the poets there, big brutes of active verbs and historical metaphors, can bench press and type at the same time. If I wrote words already heavy with accent marks or other graphics of tongue position and breath and sounds that slumber deep in the back of the throat, then I could shrug off these poems one by one. I wouldn't get hysterical, parsing simple words like love or won't or can't. You may stop reading now. I've been lying to you this whole time. I refuse to reckon the cost of these words. I will instead stuff my mouth with them till I choke. Isn't that what the poems command me to do? Um, and for my final poem, I'd like to read a Baltimore-inspired poem 
When I was in grad school, one of the teachers on faculty, not in the MFA program, but in the writing program, was Glenn Wuma, who plays with the Blue Flames. I don't know if he still does at Bertha's. And every once in a while, we'd come up here, and he'd let me sit in with the band. And um, one night, I did that, and he said to me, you sound good, baby. And that rhythm stuck in my ear, and I decided to write an eight-part poem, as one does. <laughs> it's called A Sacristy for Hunger. Um, and the only thing I should say, although you might already know this, I use the word harp several times, and in this case, it's slang for a harmonica. A Sacristy for Hunger. One. I know you never went to prom, he says, his voice whiskey sweet, his palms still brailed with harmonica notes. He smokes. We sit side by side, the last call bar deflating like a balloon. My hips crowd off my stool, his hips welcome them. He's explaining why, after his solo, he ran outside, found the tattered man who sells roses bar to bar up and down Broadway. He didn't even try to bargain. Too important, he says, his hands telling my body's future as his fingers play up and down the neck of a beer. He is always making things up to me. He is always washing wounds he did not make. Two. Baby, you looking good again tonight. You surely as, you gently as, teeth nip and pull the song from that harp. Girl, you looking good again tonight. Your mouth spilling road dust. My beloved, you, my devastation. Three. He tells her the truth of herself, that she is, after all, flesh, whereas longing casually as skin. Not with his fingers, he tells her, not with his mouth, he tells her, not even with the beast heart stalking his chest. He tells her the truth of herself, that she is, after all, a wound, whereas burning casually as skin. She wants to hear Yes, I am the stone under your tongue. Yes, my hands are deep enough. Yes, the old joke about the river is true. Four. You taste good, baby, he says, his tongue burrowing my mouth, his hands forgiving my slack breast. I kiss him back, quickly, to quiet rather than to taste him. I once had a man call me his big, dark angel. His groping mouth prematurely remembered I was too fat, not pretty, not enough. His words to fix me landing like small hooks. Tonight, this man promises I taste good. This tall man who sings with the band Friday nights, puffing out his belly because he has no ass. Five. We are skin hungry, and I am grateful for darkness, for small, salty rooms. His body moves against mine, hard and patient, his hands clenched in my fleshy ass, and even this I don't want to trust. Can't believe my small moans needling the silence, the way ache erupts into something different this time. 
something that doesn't smell like grief. This is ache, easing ache. This is lucky violence. Six, there's rain today and the time that's after rain. This small bar is drunk with rain. A woman wears her grief like pigeons, greedy, difficult. My salty loves, she thinks, my too bad luck. Her feet are drunk with grief. A woman hung with sheets of sadness. On the rain, like feathers, words fall, like bruises. Seven. Later, after you've unhooked yourself from soft words and belly moans, from the places you've pressed into me, trembling breast, the small dip between buttocks and back, the hidden folds all heat and musk between my legs. Later, when you are sleeping, I'll count your brokenness. Popped planes of cheekbone, jaw, finger-deep tunnels of want and rage, mottled stains where the harmonica bruised stormy Monday from your mouth. I'll count the places my body mourns your hands, the fleshy length of your fingers, heart bit, rough, worry your lips like a stone, greedy, unstitching that raw place where you measure loss, my tongue building a sacristy for hunger. Thank you. Thank you, Paulette. That's great. Um, so now we have Kathleen Helen. Kathleen Helen is the author of The Only Country Was the Color of My Skin, the award-winning collection Umberto's Night, and more chapbooks. Um, nominated for the Pushcart and Best of the Net and featured on Poetry Daily, her poems have been awarded the Thomas Merton Poetry Prize and prizes from the Howe Journal and Washington Square Review. She's won grants from the Maryland State Arts Council and the Baltimore Office of Promotion in the Arts. I was so moved by the ghost walk through the post-industrial landscape in Umberto's Night. I'm thrilled she's here tonight. Please welcome Kathleen Helen. I'm going to show you, this is a kimono, and I bought it here, actually, but it's so reminiscent of the kimonos that I had as, you know, that my mother had as a child. So I put it on, and I wear it, because it gives me superpower. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to wear this for the evening. Can you hear me without the mic? Do I need to be back here? Can I? Walk out and be with you guys. Okay. So this this collection took me such a long time to write because I felt like such an imposter. Um, you know, there's so, I'm a Japanese American, and there's so many you know Japanese writers who write authentically about the Nisei experience, about you know surviving Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I wasn't in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, I wasn't in an internment camp. And so I always thought, what, what do I have to contribute you know, to that legacy of writers as a Japanese American? And, and so I really struggled 
And I struggled too trying to choose the poems to read tonight because it's like it was like picking apart stitching. Everything, you know, seemed to me like it should go together. If I pulled something out, it would like all fall apart or something. So if it sounds a little disconnected, that's that's because the book is meant to be sort of like one big tsunami wave, you know, or something like that. So that's kind of my excuse, I guess. Um, I'm going to start with a poem that um, actually was the last poem I wrote for this collection. But it, it, it came to be the metaphor for everything I was trying to say about how I don't really fit in either Japanese when I grew up. When I was growing up, I didn't feel like I felt fit into either Japanese society or American society. I, have, I went to LA to visit my son who lives there. And LA has these little pockets of communities. It has like little Tokyo, little, little Korea, little China, right? And we were in little Tokyo, and I went to the museum there. It was a Japanese um, national museum. And the exhibit there, and I think it's a permanent exhibit, was to honor the, the Nisei. So I walk in, and the first thing I see along the wall, you walk into the museum, and right on the left-hand wall, huge, big, was Hello Kitty. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know who Hello Kitty is? It's, for those of you who don't know, it's like this little cartoon. She's a white bobtail cat, and she had, you know she's a girl, because she has this big bow on her head, and she has these little button eyes and a button nose, and the most extraordinary thing about her, at least for me, was that she has no mouth. And so it seemed to me sort of a, a metaphor for kind of what I was saying about not being able to write about this experience. So this is Hello Kitty. The name tags posted on the wall of Little Tokyo's museum are another way of saying We'll make an artist. Like Hello Kitty. Like pretty colored maps that track the diaspora of Japanese Peruvians, Japanese Brazilians, the black and white photographs of Nisei, stripped of their belonging, herded to the barracks, collages of internment on a panel like a silk screen. The old man asks, what might be my interest in this place? The subject of the tour, not my experience exactly, not me, a half and half. My mother, like the woman waiting at the restaurant in the plaza where I skipped the bento box for the tempura, a light-haired boy sleeping soundly in her lap, <coughs> and all the Asian women there with white men, like my father. Another way of saying he was a soldier. The old man with the docent's pin is proud. He once was one of two selected from the camps to go to prep school. <coughs> Work hard, he says, and everything will be all right if we just do what we are told. Be a paratrooper, an engineer, volunteer. Everyone was nice to us, he says. The art of not complaining, of saying what you want the world to be. But I am not the kitty 
on the backpack, the pretty fiction. I have a mouth to tell my story. So another reason why this book was really hard to write is because everything about my Japanese history was sort of buried. When we came here after the occupation, we could not speak Japanese in the house. Everything that my mother had that we brought from Japan was stored away, wrapped up, put in a cedar chest, never to be spoken about. My, my parents wanted us so much to assimilate and not be Japanese. They wanted us to be American and avoided that bad fire on them. But that's what we did. So everything was hidden. She never talked about her past. But we did talk about my father's experience during the occupation. He came to Japan um, after the war, and he started out as a supply sergeant. And he learned the language. He stayed there eight years. I don't think he would have come back to America at all <coughs> if it were not for the, the rising sort of anti-American sentiment that was growing in Japan, which, which made him fear for us, his kids, and, and himself, really. So that's why we left. But um, he went from supply sergeant, and, and he learned the language so well that he became secretary to the defense council for Tojo. Um, during the war crime trials, after the war, the American government had to supply the Japanese generals and so forth with counsel, with legal counsel. And so my father was the secretary to uh, the counsel, specifically for Tojo, who was the um, sort of main general of the land forces, the land army. So this is a poem about that, about my father, and it's called Tojo eats the stones of his defeat. My mother's childlike hand has printed your dad on the back of the photo, corresponding to the sepia-toned figure of my father in the foreground, looking down over wire rims, his desk stacked with papers. Slightly to the right, she writes, the defense attorney, Mr. Lewitt, and below him, the Japanese attorney, Dr. Kiyoso, who later became prime minister. It is 1948. My father translates generations in disgrace. Not confession, not surrender. Tojo, stripped of medals at the top with earphones, behind a stand of microphones flanked by anonymous guards. His eyes, behind the round-rimmed glasses, pierce through tint from shogunate to these on trial, from Tokyo's young lions to Meiji, me. His smiles reserved as if it were absurd. 10,000 years before you, we cultivated silk. 10,000 years from now, we will return with blades turned out. The war is never over, never lost to wounds so near the heart. We look into the past to know defeat serve shame like stones to eat for everyone left hungry. The war, the war, the war is never over. So my mother 
never talked about her experience in Japan. She lived in a little town uh, called Hamamatsu. And um, Hamamatsu was, uh, it was not a major town. It's not like Nagasaki or Hiroshima. It wasn't bombed like that, but it was firebombed. I don't know if you know anything about the, um, Curtis LeMay was the general in charge of the firebombing of uh, J the Japanese islands. And his strategy, they bombed it. The incendiary bombs came down in concentric circles. He would bomb on the perimeter of the city like this, and then the next bombing would come, the next uh, session would come closer in, then farther in and farther in and farther in, which had the effect of driving everybody to the center of the city where they were incinerated, pretty much. Is what he, that wonderful strategy, um, terribly awful. Uh, my mother's little city of Hamamatsu was bombed 12 times. And so everything that she had, the family shrine, the house, everything was gone. Everything was, was in flames. Um, and, you know, we always knew when we were growing up there was something wrong with her. Um, she would, like, disappear. She would lock herself in the bathroom and just sob for hours and then come out and her eyes would, like, swollen like watermelons. She would pink and, and puffed up. And we didn't have a name for it then. You know, we have a name for it now, PTSD. I'm pretty sure that that's what it was, but we as kids, we didn't know what was wrong with her. And, and but one of the times, the times that we would really, really see her sort of freak out and panic and turn into somebody we didn't even recognize was she used to take us to Pittsburgh every month because Pittsburgh was like 60 miles away from us or close to us. And and she wanted us to see people that looked like us because we lived in this little town in Pennsylvania and we were like the only ones there, the only ones that looked like us. So she would take us into Pittsburgh to the fish market and to the Chinese restaurants there. And she'd say, see, they look like you. There are actually people who look like you. She would deliberately take us so that we could you know, feel not so alone. Um, but to get into Pittsburgh, we had to go through this tunnel and it's called the Liberty Tubes, and it's this skinny, long, dark tunnel, and as soon as she got in that tunnel, I didn't understand why she freaked out the way she did, but I remember her having told us that during the air raids in Japan, the Pomamatsu, they would blow the air raid, and everybody would hide in tunnels. That's where they would go until the bombs went by, and so this one is called Tunnel. Ribs of soot, dim fluorescence. She snaps, noisy, noisy, at us huddled in the back of the Chevy sunken shadow. No radio, no horseplay, no sound at the center. Taillights fill the sockets of her eyes. A disembodied hand rolls up the window. Honky raids her back, a dead friend's hand rising from the ashes, skin the same freak gray as poisoned rain, as nameless flowers, until heavens merge with light. A river she remembers as the sea. We drink our bellies full of tea in a restaurant in an alley where the girl who looks like us serves up fortune in the cookie no one wants 
the effect of all this. I grew up with such cognitive dissonance, you know, kind of not mind, you try to connect, you know. And I was, I used to stare at myself in the mirror for hours to try to figure out what I was. Who are you? Um, and when I was a teenager, clearly I, I, I acted out, I rebelled, I just went totally, I don't know, I don't know what happened to me as a teenager, but I just did all, you know, all the wrong choices. So this is a poem about all those wrong, but kind of about those wrong choices. It's called Autobiographia Hysteria. And it starts out with a, with a haiku. And the haiku is, the dark self like ink, like Hiroshige's views, rained in Edo mountain. Nothing of my mother's flower lips, nothing to explain the suffering of my look, the manners of exclusion. You are overly sensitive, you are. I stood at the bridge between dogs of earth and the son who is my true father, between enemy and friend, ambiguities, a dark kimono. I might have been a thief scrounging in the prefectures, the outcast freak, the china doll, a whore, a fetish from a war that never ends. I could kill them with my countries of forgiveness. I could kill them with the smallness of my hands, reconciliation, that dagger. It's the last poem I'll read in this section. It wasn't until um, I was in my 30s, and we were busy, my parents were down in Florida at that time. It was Christmas. And my mother decided that she was going to take off the kimonos. It was like a big thing. She opened up the cedar chest, and she gave one of her kimonos to me, and the other one to my sister. And it was the first time we had seen them. We had never seen these kimonos before. But I had kids of my own. I, you know, it was, it was like way late. But I don't know what to say about that. It was just, uh, it was a moment for me. And the poem is, is about that experience, and it's called How to Wear a Kimono. The weave before the war unfolds, in leaves, in light repeating, the red azaleas haven't faded, petals lifted blooming after years from heavy lidded cedar, the gold brush seam of mountains the vein and bud as she to me, as clan to mother, the measure of erotic in the collar. The sleeves as wings released as if from their cocoon. How to shoulder. How to wear the tying over, sash and string, hands like knives through armholes under sleeves to level silk. How to walk its length, the weight in little steps. How to dress occasions of surrender, wait the sun's redress. How to guess the why, the way we hate the things we hate. 
before the war, Okasa might have worn it to a festival. Moon. Thank you so much. That was lovely, Kathleen. Um, I'm Shailene, and I'm going to take over the Pratt public speaking for the rest of the program. So I'm going to introduce Stephen. Stephen Zarantz is the author of Safe Danger, published by Indolent Books last year, which was nominated for Best Literature of the Year by Pause Magazine. His poems have appeared in West Branch, Prairie Schooner, Quarterly West, and Poet Lore, among other journals. He has also been featured on the websites of Lambda Literary and Split This Rock. He also won um, our poetry contest two years ago. <clears throat> Zarantz received his MFA from American University, where he received the Myra Sklaru Award. He lives in Baltimore. Poet Aaron Smith describes Safe Danger as, quote, a book about desire and dread, worry and wonder, about how it's possible to fear what feeds us. These marvelously brutal poems speak the body always on the verge of its own undoing, the body that is, in Stephen's words, all meat, learning how to suffer. A skilled debut, artfully written, painfully naked, and radically disruptive, close quote. We're so excited to host Stephen tonight, reading from his beautifully wrought, endlessly edgy poems, Please help me to welcome Stephen Zarantz. Gosh, I don't know if I can follow that intro. It was so nice. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be reading from my debut poetry collection, Safe Danger. Um, and for the people online, um, I'm currently wearing a Puma and Copenhagen collaboration sweater. Um, Rip Stonewash Levi's and really cute um, Adidas original shoes. So, just to give you a little mental image. Um, have you guys been watching the mess that is Lindsay Lohan's Beach House on MTV? She has a reality show where she just basically runs a club. Um, and she's kind of. Uh, I have a poem about her in my book that I'm going to read. Um, and I just like, you know, I like the mess of the early 2000s when all the girls were being bad and being arrested. I feel like celebrities nowadays are really boring. Um, and so I kind of want to bring back that bad behavior. This is Lindsay Lohan. Sedate in your mugshot, I'd worry my eyebrows weren't impeccably plucked, my chin double. I'd love to be unable to move my face. Pinch my skin taut behind my ears. Pump my lips. Pump them to a permanent Lindsay pout. I don't fear needles, incisions, nor drills. File my teeth down to the nub. Give me veneers. I've got a daily ritual. Eye serums, white strips, line breakers. Ten push-ups each time I walk into my bedroom. Crunches over crunches over lies. Suck my stomach to permanent mourning. Snap my nose straight. Lindsay, I'd steal that necklace. And I'd wear it out in public for everyone to notice. Because it was mine. 
Because if you feel so deeply that something is yours, that it belongs to you, then it does. <laughs> that was a line my friend told me about how um, she shoplifts. So, you know the idea that like you own something and you can just walk out of a store. Um, I still don't know like the order of my book. It's awful. Um, so, Madonna tweeted at me once after reading this poem, and it's kind of like a story that is just gonna be like on my gravestone because like I always bring it up. I'm like, Madonna tweeted me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is Mother. Madonna of material. I snapped my rosary. Made it into a bracelet for you at Sunday school. Snuck downstairs to see you lit before inflame crosses. My fingers scented with your patchouli cassette. I get drunk, Madonna. So drunk I sneak leftover drinks from the bar. I lose myself in the mirror plucking gray hairs. Tug at the sag in my belly. I want to conquer my fear of heights, Madonna of having roaches or the virus inside my body. I want a cheap 22-year-old lover that doesn't speak English. I want my hair bleached blonde. I want to go to the bar, mother. I want a vodka double, mother, a double vodka, Madonna on the rocks. Um, so, like Shailene mentioned, two years ago, I somehow got a poem about a uh, triple homicide and <laughs> on the uh, library outside for winning their poetry contest. Um, uh, and it's a poem about true crime. I'm kind of like a murder head and can fall asleep watching Forensic Files. It's like very soothing. Whoever did the narration of that show is like really good. Um, I recommend. This is true crime. In the home invasion, the husband meets the baseball bat. The three women go up with the house. And for 30 minutes, the police watch and do absolutely nothing. Everyone wants the outcome to be so different. The case could have been prevented at many terms. The rape, strangulation, pouring of gasoline. I've been watching true crime, still not afraid of strangers. The killer is usually family, close, loved, known. When the beauty queen was discovered bludgeoned, garroted, body on stage, the fingers all pointed inside of the house. I tried to rationalize abject crime, my fascination. Both have always been around. I love the idea of what is impossible for myself. When I pop the razor from under my tongue and think it over, the simplest explanation. I revolve around danger. Talking to strangers, a white mane grows out of my feet. It's hard to keep a story straight. The horses want to get loose. In the home invasion, the mother says, they're nice men to the bank teller. She returns to the rape, strangulation, pouring of gasoline. The story all at once is pointless. There is a luxury of being alive. In my life, there's nothing wrong. I want to light it 
on fire, I'm a weapon with no safety. When I enter a room, I must go off. Let's see what else I should read. Um, so this poem is called Gay Fiction, and it features lots of titles of um, gay novels that I like to read growing up. Um, so if you hear some, that's why they're there. Uh, gay Fiction. Those books I devoured about the abyss of love through sex where men where man ends solo or can't come to the party where cancer entertains, candles lit, then snuffed one by one, the smoke leaving all at the farewell symphony. Oh my Satan, I've never been so sad that sex is still fun in the hour of night walkers. There you are, a piece in everyone. I want to die surrounded by candy, a city and a pillar in my mouth. I'll wear a mask, confess nothing but these words. These are days to keep the dead, to cling to the living desire inside not to be afraid. Caution when consuming men. The symptoms, the symptoms start with unsteady muscle control, wild laughter, convulsion, awakening in unfamiliar surroundings, unable to stand. Welcome to the strange room. This is skin tight. My father hands me gifts he bought Christmas Eve. An extra large broadcloth and 34 waist khakis. I dress different from the boys at school. My shirts fall at my navel. My jeans are skin tight. I am to wear the outfit or my clothes will be ripped apart. The neighbors are talking. No deals, no exceptions. We are all there. My mother, my sister on the couch, my father urging, put them on, put them on. I strip in the bathroom with my back to the mirror. The shirt hangs to my knees. The pants slide on, buttoned. My face is hollow. My skin deaf as the audience. The family await me, wait, awaiting me outside. My mother knocking. Put them on for your father. Put them on. When I step out, my mother will be silent. My sister, gone. My father will clap his hands. He will look me in the eye. Ask me, do you feel like a man? I think I'll do just one more. Let's see what I'm feeling like. This is a poem about working out. Um, yeah, it's called Diet of the Saints. For the first time, I look vulgar, blown up muscles down my V. I make love to myself all night keeping the machine churning, arm on the rack in a hair-weighted vest, beating heart, legs on the press. Water, 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 I'm better. I'm the best gymnasium idol with my cosmetic intuition. Oh, my poor, poor kidney. I don't know if I'm getting closer to God or the devil when I piss electric yellow with my kick in the mouth. Five Vita caps, 
white water pill, red for jitters. I'm falling into myself while horses gallop down my throat. Nothing on me by this diet of saints with their scourges, chains, spiders, and thorns. It doesn't hurt, no, the harvest is habit, all infinitive. To keep at it, to stay wasting, wasting, consumptive, holding the pose. To visit the monster I've created daily. I'm all meat, learning how to suffer. Thank you, guys. To the front, we're gonna do a little Q and A. Um, thank you, you're reading. Great. Oh, I'm in the middle, right? <laughs> you don't have to sit down there. Okay, so um, so we'll just do a little Q and A, and then we usually conclude the reading um, with each poet reading one final poem, so you'll get to hear them read one last time. Um, um, but would anyone like to start with a question? Oh, I can I could start, I guess. Um, so one thing I was <clears throat> wondering is if there's a particular challenge or task that you're setting yourself to work on in your writing right now. Like, um, is there something that, that you like to work on or see as a, as a goal? My goal is actually to write. I hate writing right now. I've broken up with poetry. <laughs> Um, I just, as I said, I just finished the book about my dad over the summer, and it's taken me a long time to really recover from that, and you know, with everything that's going on in the world, I keep thinking, why? Why would I want to sit down and stab myself in the heart with a pen? So my goal is to just, like, get excited about writing again, and to also to, to figure out how to be that girl that would stand in front of a stage with a notebook, completely unselfconsciously just writing, writing, writing. I want to get back to having that kind of fire in my belly. I want to take more risks. I think sometimes I'm too, I kind of get locked into certain rhythms and certain things that I do. And I think one of the things I like to do is like just say, stop that. <laughs> you know, try something different. So I try to read people who are sort of way, so totally different from myself and, and sort of see what they're doing, you know, what kind of techniques and strategies they're using. And then I try to fool around with my own writing. So that's kind of what I do. More risks. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be funnier. Um, <laughs> You're hysterical. I want to, like, incorporate more kind of, like, almost stand-up into... Uh, my poetry, but also kind of like mix that with very like heavy subjects. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm kind of on the tight, the high rise, like wire, whatever that's called or whatever, you know. So mm -hmm. just kind of like taking a risk with that. So either it will be funny or really offensive. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not good. Yourself or create an environment that helps you get started or feel comfortable to begin to write or vodka. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, 
I think that kind of I am of the uh, like thought that if you're stuck on something, it's fine to put it to sleep and let it rest and come back to it when you know it comes to you. Um, I think kind of pushing yourself through uh, kind of blocks by doing exercises and stuff. I I think things come out and there's a time for them to come out. So I think just being patient. Um, I think that's something you have to learn to do. So I'm the exact opposite. I just, I get up like around four or five o'clock every morning because I have to go to work, I have to be at work. And so there's like no time. After I get to work, my, my brain turns into, you know, it goes into a different mode. So I have to like catch myself before I get caught up with everything else that's going on in the world. And so I try to write really, really early. And even if I don't feel like writing, I just, I'll just write. And sometimes it's horrible stuff, you know, but I just insist on, on writing, writing, writing. Um, I like to go away. I like to go to places I've never been before because then you see stuff with new eyes, right? And then I say, oh, because the stuff that, you know, is around me every day, I don't want to write about it because I, I don't, almost don't even see it. But if I push myself to a different environment, like all of a sudden, oh, wow, look at that sky. You know, all of a sudden it's a sky. So I do that. And I also read other writers. And I read really good ones, so I get this sort of envy, and I want to try to be as good as they are. And then I like to read the bad ones, too, because then I can say, oh, I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so those are all the things I do. I do a lot of <laughs> um, I have to. I like what you said about creating an environment, because for me, sometimes it's just, my apartment's just too much of a hot mess for me to do anything. and. I say that to say I have to, I've tried to learn to recognize what's the best environment. And for me, if everything is in chaos, um, I need to like force myself to vacuum or whatever just to get to a little bit of a calmer place. Definitely reading. Um, you know, nothing sends me to the page quicker than reading someone else's work. And sometimes when I'm at a reading, I'm like, if I'm not struggling to pay attention that's how I know the poet's not good. Because when you hear good poets, you're like, oh, but I, oh, I'm kind of rude because I'm in the front row to like whip out my notebook and start writing. Because their work, like you just are on fire and, and just want to do something. Um, and then for me, art is a huge thing, just going to museums and walking around with a notebook. And then also just being in the habit of writing. And I don't try to write poems every day, but I do try to journal. And a lot of times it's really about what I'm having for breakfast and what I plan to wear, and what I want to get from Sephora. But if I just do it every day, I will get to a place where I start going deeper, or a poem comes out, I'm like, oh, where did that come from? So definitely just kind of trying to make myself show up every day, at least for two pages of scribbling. Kind of like um, writing and reading your poetry. Um, how do those two things affect one another? In that, I mean, it's like one thing to be a choreographer; it's another thing to perform a dance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I definitely think poetry is an oral art, and that 
um, for me, part of the process is being able to read your work out loud, um, and they kind of feed each other. And I mean, I grew up doing theater and singing, and so along with writing, so it's all always been part of the body for me. So I guess those two things just kind of work together. But I also think it's you know it's your job. You're a poet, and you need to learn how to read your work. And these two are amazing readers. My favorite people, you're like, God, please shut up because you are ruining your work for me. And I'm like, people are so excited. I think you owe it to yourself. If you're not a natural performer or you're not a natural reader, to kind of figure out how to somehow get the poem into your body and and how to release it in a somewhat pleasing way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there are two kinds of poems. There are poems that are head poems. And they're really better if you just read them, you know, because they're taking you someplace that, that you, a lot of the poem, if you read it, people would miss because there's so much invested in the print. Even visually on the page, there's certain things that are happening that you might want to pay attention to. And then there are poems that you read. And it's good to read everything that you have out loud, I think, because you can hear where, you know, where it stumbles, where it isn't, you know, just doesn't sound right. But I definitely do think that there are poems in here that I would not read because I just don't think that they're more, they're, they're just not readers. I don't know if that makes sense. They're not reader poems. They're, they're sort of head poems. They're located here. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think there are two, two kinds. Yeah. Maybe more. Maybe <laughs> others curl up with those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the performance aspect is very much like part of it, but I agree that there are some poems that like, I just don't want to read, but I mean, if I could, I would have like, background dancers and like, <laughs> installations and stuff, like, I want to be like a pop star poet. I want to have a mixtape. Yeah. That you could like, you create, have like a mixtape and a whole like disco scene going on, then yeah. you'd read and then you'd go back to the disco scene, that would be amazing. Yeah, it's like in Russia, like Poets Pat Stadium. I mean, like, I'm trying to go on tour. I'm trying to have the Madonna tour, like, with that level of production. But do you, now, really, do you really want to do that? Or I would love to. I think that... That was super fun. I think that that was, like... I mean, one time I applied for a grant, and I was like, I want to make music videos for my poems. Like, of course, it was turned down, but, you know, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, poetry is what is performance uh, and it's like all, it's music so why not a couple of you had mentioned siblings in the picture and I wondered like what reactions that family members had of some of the work that's really raw mm-hmm. that may have pushed some buttons um I mean, I really haven't had, like, bad reactions to it, because it's like, you know, I didn't lie. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, I don't don't really know. Um, For me, really, the only person that really has somewhat of an interest in my poetry is my sister, and she prefaces everything with, I don't really like or understand poetry, but I think this is possibly a good poem, but when I was writing um, the book about my dad, which was the most personal, I did think about, I have a sister and two brothers, 
and um, my sister and one of my brothers, we were all together while my dad was dying and I purposely cut them out of all of the poems because I was like, that felt like this is my, it was so strongly about my relationship with him. It didn't, it felt like including them would put words in their mouth. And I am nervous about when this book finds a home and goes out into the world, how to deal with it. Cause it has been difficult. A few things I've posted, my dad's siblings are not down with my point of view. Um, and so I haven't quite figured out how to work that out. Hoping I could just not tell them. And just yeah. never yeah. never do a reading in Queens. I think I might be good. <laughs> that is currently my plan. Yeah. One of the problems I had with this question, why it took so long to write, is because I had to wait for people to die. Quite frankly, I just had to, because I'm telling secrets. I have poems in here about, you know, my, my great-grandmother was a, uh, was a geisha, and geisha, you don't, you don't tell those stories. My mother told me, you don't, you know, you don't tell your stories, right? So people had to die. There's, there were a couple poems that I gave to my father um, uh, for him to look at. My mother would always say, that's not true. That didn't happen. <laughs> she would just negate everything, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of a yin-yang thing going on there, you know, like, that never happened. Never happened like that, Cassie. And, you know, and says, yes, it did. No, it never happened. And my dad, but he, he had a different, there's a poem I wrote for my dad. You know, Japanese are always associated with rice. And actually, it was my dad who taught me how to cook rice. And so I have a poem in here about how my dad taught me how to cook rice. And he, I sent it to him, and he, he put that poem into his safe deposit box. I found it, yeah, after he died. It was in his safe deposit box with all like his important papers and stuff. And of course, you know, I was just like ripped up and I saw it just, you know, like that really meant a lot to me. Um, so that's kind of where my family is, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm One of them, short many. What do you like? 
Um, I really, uh, it's kind of like a forgotten poetry book, but I like James White, The Salt Ecstasies. I recommend it very highly. Um, I'd recommend Javier Zamora. I think it's called Unaccompanied, especially with um, the immigration debate, whatever side you're on. I feel it's a very important book because he was undocumented when he first got here, and it's just from a child's point of view of making that trek, and it is just probably one of the most powerful things I've ever, ever read. I can tell, like, there's so many I could bring. I don't know where to go, you know, like, what to... The last person ever was Dana Smith, who's just really incredible. You know, that was quite a journey. Um, I love Alice Notley just because she messes with language so much, and she makes her own you know, rhythms and stuff. Too. There's so many people. I, you know, it's just too... Um, yeah, okay. Should we do closing poems? I think, yeah. So each poet is going to read just, you can just read from the table. Um, just one last poem for us. Thank you. You start. Oh, Susie, you go first. Right. Change. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is called How to Begin. Strip your life as Venus and Mars align, catching you staggered as traffic swims the wrong way down a one-way street. Throw all your gold in a lake. Wait for it to rise, to walk you through the city on your eyes. Change your name, get kicked out of the after party for having the wrong card, for holding two glasses up, three poured back. Notice the gray in your hair, notice something split in your hair. Hold two glasses up, pour three back at the after party for having the wrong card. Get kicked out, your name changed. On your eyes, walk through the city, waiting to rise. In a lake, find all the gold you need. Walk the wrong way down a one-way street, staggered as traffic is caught, as Mars and Venus align. Strip your life is how to begin. Um, okay. Do you want to hear something that's more historical or something more personal? Which would you rather have? More personal poem? Personal poem as opposed to something about. Okay, okay, but I'm gonna. Well, I haven't read this in a long time. Let me find it. I'm, I was gonna read the other one. I thought for sure you were gonna say the other one. Um, okay, so I'm going to read this poem. And where is it? It's called. It's called Wedding of the Foxes. Does anybody know? Anybody familiar with that term? Wedding of the Foxes. Wedding of the Foxes is like this really strange phenomenon that occurs when it's raining and the sun shining at the same time. And it, the natural phenomenon in Japan, they say it's that, that's the, a magic time. And the foxes come out. And when the foxes come out, they marry each other. So that's kind of like the background of the poem. So let me see if I can find it now. Where is it? Wedding of the Foxes, page 40. Here we go. Okay, personal. So that's, and it's like a myth that they tell little kids, although it's kind of scary, because if you catch the foxes when they're marrying, they will kill you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so this is called Wedding of the Foxes. If you hung as a child on the wedding of the foxes, the slow, strange procession to the bridge of mist. 
the bride's white approach on flute and stealthy drum. Do not hide, run, if vulgar scent gives you away. If pines reveal what you are stealing in the pockets of your eyes, never ask why this is that, or why sometimes a hand becomes a paw reaching into forests. Run to where the sun bends into sudden colors, where your mother waits behind the sliding screen to see if it is you knocking, answers in her fox's voice disguised as no or die, answers as she hands you the dagger. This is a Baltimore poem I wish I hadn't had to write. Freddie Gray breaks free. I found the straw that broke my camel's back in the rear of a police wagon. No seatbelt, just these cuffs to keep my hands focused on the work of shedding this black body. I was free, so terribly free that white van my proving ground. I didn't want to go, Yet I wanted to be done with that roll call of ways to keep myself safe. I cried out so they'd know I was free to throw myself from side to side in that van, free to rumpus, free to break my own back if I wanted to, shed those ill-intentioned bones of my spine that had locked me into this shape called black man. What freedom was that? I let them go, those injurious vertebrae. I slam danced a freedom jive for 20 minutes straight in the back of that van. I felt myself snap. I broke myself free. Well, I would like to thank um, the poets um, for being here tonight and reading for us. This is a lovely reading, and thank you for your answers to our questions. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.